Thanks, Pastor Nate. Thanks, team. Ah, it's beautiful. And, and by the way, thanks to the team that did this. Isn't that pretty? I love that. Yeah, praise God. Praise God. Friends, we, we got just a wonderful uh, group of volunteers and people that serve so faithfully around here. Many of you are sitting right here, and I'm so grateful uh, for you and for all the different ways that, that the body of Christ uh, lives out our values uh, together. So thank you for that. Hey, I, I wonder this morning, uh, have you ever felt like your rights have been violated? Anybody? <laughs> Anybody ever felt that way? Uh, when I was a freshman, uh, back in our 7th through ninth grade junior high, uh, our football team was out practicing. Well, uh, unbeknownst to us, uh, someone broke into our locker room and ran off with a bunch of our money and, and valuables, whatever valuables freshman football players had, right? And, and we didn't even have phones back then, so you know, that, that's the deal. But, but they did. They ran off with our valuables. And you can imagine the indignation as our team got back into the locker room and started to realize what had happened. I mean, here were a bunch of athletes who, in many ways, at least thought of themselves as the big men on campus. It was, remember, 7th through ninth grade, right? And, and here, the, the one group that you probably didn't want to mess with, right, these kind of over-testosterone boys uh, who, uh, who love to lift weights and, you know, beat their chests against each other, uh, here, this most antagonizable group was not happy at the violation. <laughs> and then on top of that, we found out who did it. <laughs> and you know who it was? It was a couple of small, uh, cheeky little seventh grade boys, right? Uh, they, they stole from the ninth grade football team. Not very smart, right? And, and I mean to tell you, we, we quickly resolved that they would not only pay back our money, but that they would also pay with a pound of flesh, right? You can imagine the conversation these ninth grade football players were having. Now, you can also imagine that when this news hit the wire, uh, our, our football team was quickly called into the principal's office, right? And so our vice principal, I remember speaking in no uncertain terms, after offering a, a bit of empathy for our indignation, quickly said, hey, there's no way you're going to lay a hand on those seventh grade boys, all right? You're, you're not to pursue revenge here. And apparently the warning was sufficient because I don't remember any of us actually going after those, those guys. No one laid a hand on the boys. And of course, we're glad for that, right? But, but as I look back on that experience, I wonder, what would it have been like for our vice principal to say, you know, not only are you not to lay a hand on those kids, but actually I, I want you to invite them into your practice. I want you to get to know them. I, I want you to hang out with them a little bit. I want you to give them an opportunity to make things right. And when they do, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make them students of the month, all right? I'm going to give them privileges. They're going to get to sit at the front or go to the front of the line in the lunch room, all, all these things. We're really going to celebrate these kids. Now, how do you think that would have sat with the freshman football team? Not very well, right? No, no way. It's not going to fly. And see, church, deep within us is the conviction, this notion that when our rights have been violated, we have every right to hold it against the perpetrator. We have a sense of what's called talionic justice, okay? That what gets inflicted, it's returned in kind. And this makes sense to us. It seems rational, right? Uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, we've heard that. And, and so though we might show some restraint out of necessity when it comes to dealing with seventh grade kleptomaniacs, we, we certainly don't intuitively bless those kids in the aftermath of their violation, okay? You with me? All right, we want justice. We want justice. And in fact, many of our laws reflect this line of thinking. And that's why when, when we come to the end of our study in the book of Jonah, if we really think about it, we, we might not fault Jonah for his response to God's direction to go to Nineveh. 
See, if you've been around uh, here for the last six weeks or so, uh, you know that we've been studying this book where God in Jonah chapter 1 says to Jonah, look, I want you to head northeast. I want you to go up to Nineveh with a message that I want to give them. And Jonah uh, says, God, I'm going to get up, but I'm not going your direction. I'm going to go the other direction. And so what does Jonah do? He goes down to Joppa, right? The seaport of Joppa. He goes down to the beach and finds a boat. He gets into the boat, goes down into the hull of the boat. He goes out into the sea. He goes down into the depths of the sea when the storm comes up and the sailors throw him overboard and then he goes down into the belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea and then he's puked up on dry land with fish vomit running down his beard all right this is the predicament this is the place that Jonah is in and as we've watched Jonah's almost comedic sprint away from God if we're honest we can also empathize we kind of get it Jonah's rights and the rights of the people that he loves have been violated by the Ninevites And in fact, in much worse form than a kleptomaniac entering a ninth grade locker room, all right? You might remember what I shared from our first message uh, from Franklin Page. And this is intense, and so if you remember, just if there are ears that need to be covered, go ahead. But the Ninevites were accustomed to tearing off the lips and the hands of their victims, right? Tiglath Pileser, one of their kings, he would flay victims alive and he made great piles of their skulls. Assyria was a brutal empire. Everybody knew it. These were bad people. They were rough. And so, though it's easy to criticize Jonah from our end, it it wouldn't be unlike if Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said to one of his generals, look, I want you to hop across the border. I want you to walk over into Moscow. I want you to go up to the Kremlin and I want you to deliver him a message. Hey, if you guys just say you're sorry, we're all good here. Okay, we forgive, right? Highly unlikely, highly intense, right? Be tough to do. But church, that's pretty much exactly what God asks of Jonah. It's the same kind of scenario. And if we're honest, we can empathize with Jonah if this messes with him a little bit, right? Why such grace for such a brutal company? And church, if we're honest, when we look at God's interaction with Jonah, it messes with us a little bit as well, right? See, if God used Jonah to extend grace to the Ninevites, what does that say about God's desire for us? Well, church, as always, I'm convinced that we find our answers in the inerrant and infallible Word of God. And so, if you would, please, take your copy of Scripture and turn to the last chapter of Jonah, chapter 4. And we're going to start with a little context in chapter 3, verse 10, and then we'll work our way through the text, Jonah 4, this morning. So here it is, starting in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Remember, that was our message last week. The Ninevites repented. They admitted their sin. They asked for God's forgiveness. They altered their behavior. They accepted God's grace. That's what the Ninevites did. But now here in chapter 4, we come to the, the climax of the book, and it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was angry. Church, the language here indicates Jonah's ticked off. He's mad. He's upset. Uh, a guy named James Bruckner offers a different translation that's, that's good. He says, to Jonah, it was a disaster. It was a great disaster. And he became angry. He was mad. He was ticked off. Jonah can't think of anything good that could come from God's kindness to the Ninevites. 
And I mean, uh, think about it from Jonah's perspective. Sure, they, they say they're sorry now, right? But, but old habits die hard. And, and if God doesn't destroy them, who's to say they're not going to come back in another 20 years and be the same kind of threat to Jonah's people? And in fact, that's what happens. In 722 BC, the Assyrians attack the nation of Israel. They brutally oppress them, and then they carry them off into exile. Jonah's fears were actually realized. The repentance of the Ninevites wouldn't last beyond a generation. By human standards, Jonah had a point. He had a pretty good one. Talionic justice. And yet his anger goes beyond current events. And this is fascinating here. Look at this. Look at Jonah's complaint in verse 2. It says, And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and you're merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God, I knew it. I knew this would happen. And church, as we hear hear Jonah's complaint, we, we realize this isn't just against God's activity in Nineveh. Jonah's complaint is with God's character. See, Jonah has a beef, not just with what God does, but also with who God is. And this formula in in verse 2 shows up in several places throughout the Old Testament. And Jonah knew this very well. Uh, It shows up in several places throughout the Old Testament to demonstrate the nature of God's character. Uh, For instance, in Exodus 34, 6, the Israelites, uh, Moses is up on the mountain, and the Israelites get impatient, right? He's up there for 40 days. There's another 40-day reference, all kinds of links in in Jonah back to the the Exodus and other places. But, But for 40 days, Moses is up there. The people of God get impatient. And they say, you know what, this isn't working. Uh, Aaron, why don't you make us a golden calf so we have something tangible to worship? And, and he does it. Inspeakably, he does it. And the people prostitute themselves to this calf. They, they worship this golden calf. And, and, and God comes down. He says, you know what, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to judge these people. But Moses pleads to God for mercy. And this, this beautiful passage in Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord revealed his character. He revealed his heart here. And Jonah knew this history. He knew that his people were a people engraced by God at multiple points throughout their history. He knew God's faithfulness to faithless Israel. And yet he couldn't bear, that, bear to see that same grace extend beyond Israel's borders. Notice in chapter 2, you remember from a few weeks ago, Jonah, Jonah glowingly worships God for delivering him from the raging seas. But now here in chapter 4, he's fuming with God for offering that same deliverance to someone else. Church, how often do our complaints reflect Jonah's? You know, we, we appreciate and, and readily accept grace for ourselves, Right? But when it comes to applying it to others, particularly to to people like the Ninevites, maybe even to seventh grade kleptomaniacs, we bristle, don't we? We bristle. Jonah was was so appalled that in verse 3 it says, Therefore now, this is Jonah speaking, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. He was so mad, so angry. 
He was so despondent at the notion of God's grace to these Ninevites who had oppressed his people and others around him. He preferred death over everything else. So this is the way it's going to be. I don't want to be a part of it anymore. James Bruckner again captures this dynamic. I want you to listen to what he says. I think it's helpful. He says these simultaneous realities, okay, Jonah's confidence in and his objection to God's grace. See, Jonah, Jonah believed in God's mercy. Jonah understood God's mercy. He just objected to it for the Ninevites. It's not that he didn't think that God was merciful. He just didn't want that mercy to go to the Ninevites. And so uh, these simultaneous realities present us with the complexity of faith in a Lord who cannot be tamed and whose mercy and forgiveness cannot be controlled. All who attempt to limit God's gracious action share Jonah's protest. Let me die now. Your grace is too abundant. I want only the grace that's come to me. Church, we empathize with Jonah's complaint. We might even identify with it. But praise God, he doesn't leave Jonah to this miserable request. In fact, he doesn't even answer it. (laughs) I love that. He almost ignores it. And God doesn't leave us to this kind of thinking either. Listen to how God responds to Jonah's complaint. Verse 4. It says, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? In other words, Jonah, what what right have you to be angry here? How how are you assuming your your rights have been violated? What, What makes you think you have the corner on my mercy? Jonah, you seem pretty convinced of your rights. Uh, in this situation, you, you seem pretty convinced that you've been violated. So let's talk about this. What rights do you think you have? And, and Jonah responds in verse 5, not with rebuttal, not with more logic, but he does what's typical of Jonah throughout the book. <laughs> he runs the other direction. When God speaks, Jonah runs the other way. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Isn't that interesting? God keeps speaking. Jonah keeps running. (laughs) Keeps rising up, going the opposite direction. He's delivered his message. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Uh, And now, without a word, like a young child throwing a fit, he goes outside the city in the opposite direction of whence he came. And he perches himself under a tent. He makes a booth, identifying with the people of Israel and the Feast of Booths. And he waits to see what's going to happen. Okay, God, I've given the message. Now it's your part. He still hopes for judgment. But probably he expects disappointing grace. Because <laughs> look what happens next, verse 6. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Church, do you see the brilliance in in where God's going here with Jonah? See, though Jonah's behavior is clearly out of bounds, rather than confronting him directly, God God leads with a question. (laughs) What a great way to confront somebody who's angry, right? Rather than make an accusation, to lead with a question. Man, I need to remember that. I need to apply that. But not just a question. Then he follows it up with an object lesson. Hey, Jonah, I'm going to make you think here. See, Jonah's sitting at the edge of the city, quite uncomfortable in the hot Middle Eastern sun. 
And so when God, God appoints a plant to, to grow up and to cover him with shade, I mean, Jonah's happy. He's ecstatic. God, this is good. Finally, you're realizing I'm entitled to something here. Thank you for giving me this shade. And, and it's, it's, it's really fascinating how the text gets laid out here. It says that Jonah was exceedingly angry in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. But now... Jonah's exceedingly glad at his own deliverance. Verse, verse 6. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, it says. Jonah's exceedingly glad at his deliverance from the son's oppression. He was angry at the deliverance of the Ninevites. He's glad at his own deliverance. And, and we can't help but notice the irony here. For, for the first time in the whole book, Jonah's happy. <laughs> Finally. And it's all because of a plant. And it's all predicated on his own blessing. Now, watch what God does next. Verses 7 through 9. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. <laughs> Churches, as the plant withers away, as the heat rises with the east wind, Jonah's, Jonah doubles down and he boils over with anger. And God's object lesson becomes clear. God, God means to expose Jonah's attitude. He, he means to expose Jonah's sin. See, Jonah's acting as one who's clearly entitled here. And God asked the second time, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? What, what right of yours has been violated? Where's this coming from, Jonah? And as Jonah fits about the vine while still fuming about the Ninevites, his attitude clearly reflects the notion that he, as a prophet of God, from the people of God, deserves God's grace over and against everyone else. And so God asks him, Jonah, do you, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And finally, the Lord brings him to this place where he's ready to hear, perhaps. The Lord calls him out anyway. Look at verse 10. It says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also so much cattle. Do you want to listen to yourself? You're, you're upset about a plant. When there are 120,000 vulnerable people in Nineveh, that by the way, I, I created in my image, those people matter to me. Remember, Nineveh is a great city, not just big, but important. God cares about those people. And as barbaric as they are, they've grown up in this environment. They come by it, I, I think, honestly, at least most of them. They, they don't know any other way. They don't know their right from their left. And, and Jonah, why should I care more about your plant than the people that I created? And see, Jonah, here's the bottom line. You, you want grace for yourself. In fact, you, you think you deserve it, evidenced by your excitement at the growing up of the plant. 
You were glad when I delivered you from the belly of the fish. But when I delivered Nineveh from its destruction, your hypocrisy is exposed. And it's only confirmed by how you've responded to the plant I gave you and subsequently took away. Church, God called Jonah to proclaim a message. And Jonah ran the other way. Praise God, he didn't let him get away with it. He exposed Jonah's attitude. But not just that. See, on top of exposing Jonah's attitude, God has some things to reveal about himself here. And see, the object lesson doesn't just describe Jonah. It also demonstrates something about God that I think is critical. Verse 6, notice this. It says, God appointed a plant. (laughs) And then in verse 7, it says, God appointed a worm. And in verse 8, it says, God appointed a scorching east wind. Remember what we said earlier in our series? God's not limited by our rebellion, is he? He's not limited by us. And as God asks Jonah, what what right have you to complain about my activity? He demonstrates to Jonah his ability to do whatever he wishes with complete freedom. God's not limited by our rebellion. God appoints a plant and a worm and a wind. There, there are, these are no random occurrences. And see, God's object lesson for Jonah here is not only to expose Jonah's attitude, but also to demonstrate his own freedom. He wants to demonstrate his own freedom. Freedom to what? <laughs> well, church, what does God do with the plant? What's the first thing? Church, he makes the plant rise up and give comfort and shade to Jonah. <laughs> I've been in the Middle Eastern sun. I've been down by the Dead Sea in Israel. And I, I mean to tell you, it gets hot there. There's no shade. And so when you're out exposed in the sun, you're so glad when you stand under a tree. And literally, it feels like about a 15 degree difference, right? It's amazing. It's like walking, you know, being outside in Wisconsin in the humid 90 degrees and walking into air conditioning in your house. And some of you have it set at 61. I know you do. <laughs> Church, God's free to grow plants wherever he likes. Amen? God can grow plants wherever he wants to grow them. What does God do for the Ninevites? He hears their cries. He sees their repentance. And he acknowledges that they've accepted his word. That they've agreed about their sin. That they've asked for his forgiveness and then they've altered their behavior. God sees the genuineness of this generation of Ninevites. And therefore he accepts their repentance so they can accept his grace. God can grow plants wherever he wants to grow them. And he can forgive whomever he wants to forgive. Even the Ninevites. And see this reflects another Old Testament principle. Also revealed in Exodus 34. God says, verse 19, I'm going to be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Church, God is free to grant mercy to whomever he wishes. Jonah wants to remain, uh, wants mercy to remain exclusive. Jonah wants to keep mercy for himself. Jonah wants to keep mercy confined to the Hesed covenant love of God for the nation of Israel. God says, no, i got a different plan here. My my plan is not just to show mercy to you, but but to all the world. Always has been, always will be, even the vilest among 
My heart is that all would turn from their sin and come to faith in me. That's God's heart for the world. Church, God can grow plants wherever he wants to, but, but not just that. He's not just free to forgive. He's also free to judge. He's free to judge. Because just as God's, God raised up the plant, God also sent the worm and the scorching wind. And see, Jonah, he desperately wants to sit on that bench and to hold that gavel. But God says, Jonah, it's not your job. It's my job. I'm the judge, not you. You're my messenger. And I'm going to be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'm going to show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. And Jonah, I'm going to judge whom I will judge. Church, God is free to forgive and he's free to judge. And I think Peter captures this in his second letter. Maybe we'll study the whole book someday. Who knows? But it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is merciful. Amen? But then listen to this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is also judge. And at his time and in his way, he'll come as such. And church, we hold these things in theological tension. God's grace next to God's holiness. We've sung about both this morning. <laughs> we sang that beautiful song, I am who you say I am. I'm chosen. I'm not forsaken. I'm yours, Lord. But then we sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Set in contrast seemingly to one another and yet so beautifully intertwined. God's holiness and God's mercy. We hold them in tension. God's mercy, God's wrath, God's forgiveness, God's judgment. Church, it isn't ours to decide when and where and how it gets applied. That, that's God's job. Our responsibility, our job is to give thanks for what we've received and then to respond accordingly. <laughs> and then to respond accordingly. How, how do we do that? Well, church, it, it starts... By acknowledging God, God isn't limited by my rebellion. Praise God. Praise God. My silly attitude, my hard heart, my poor actions don't limit God. Wouldn't that be scary if that happened? <laughs> I'm so grateful that, that my rebellion doesn't limit God's ability, God's freedom. God's not limited by that. He's neither limited by that nor our intellect, by our sense of reasoning, by our comfort, by our desires, by anything else, human or otherwise. God is not limited by us, church. Amen? The question is, do we trust God's limits for us? God has limits for us. In other words, do we trust God's sovereignty? Do we trust God's plan? Yes, Nineveh may rise again as that terroristic world power that comes for the Israelites. But even in that, there's grace. Because church, the Israelites were walking away from God as far as they could. And they needed God's loving discipline. And Hebrews tells us the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so God would, would even use these brutal Assyrians who repented for a short time in, in the, their history to advance on the Israelites, to haul them off into exile so the Israelites could experience God in a way they never would have otherwise. And on top of that, though, though Nineveh does repent at Jonah's message, they will backslide, as I said. But in that, they will be judged. Because Assyria, though they come for Israel, 
will have Babylon coming for them. And Assyria will face consequences for their sin in God's time and in God's way. But for now, in this generation, in Jonah's generation, God in His sovereignty offers repentance. And in that, grace. Friends, are you willing to trust God for justice today? Are you, are you willing to entrust your desire to have your rights protected to God's discretion, to God's sovereignty? Bruckner says, the extension of grace to the rebellious is not a repudiation of cosmic justice. Praise God. God's grace is not a repudiation of justice, but it's the freedom of God to deliver unpredictably the unlikely creature. <laughs> This radical grace is the hope of all cultures that turn in arrogance from their creator. Friends, I don't know about you, but I have hope in that. Cultures that turn in arrogance away from their creator are not forever outside of God's ability to save. It's also the hope of the faithful law keeper who's ignorant that God's grace and mercy undergird every law's intent. See, those of us that have the Word of God, those of us that have been studying it for years and years and years, we may know God's Word. We may assume we know how to apply God's Word. Therefore, somehow we don't need grace. But church, Jonah reminds us, this is the hope even of the faithful law keeper who's ignorant that God's grace and mercy undergird every law's intent. We cannot follow God without God's power. What God requires, God provides. That's called grace. Every righteous action, every inherited tradition, and every life that's open to its creator, the grace is the same, though its shape is different. I need grace in a different shape than you do. But it comes from the same source. Amen? Praise God. Yes, the Ninevites needed grace. Jonah needed grace. The seventh grade kleptomaniacs needed grace. So do we. So do we. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord is laid on him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Yes, if, I, if I'm an ancient Jew, I might have a right to be angry at the Ninevites. If I'm a modern Ukrainian, I, I might have a right to be angry at the Russians. If I was a freshman football player at Schrader Junior High, I might have had a right to be angry at those seventh grade kids. But when I remember all we like sheep have gone astray, I remember I too need grace. And the question is, will I trust God to dispense that grace as he desires? Or am I going to climb up on the bench and pick up that gavel and assume a place that isn't mine? Church, we're called to trust God's sovereignty. We're called to trust his sovereignty. But not only that, we're also to engage God's mission. I want you to notice how abruptly this book ends. Verse 11, God says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The book ends with a question. And we're left hanging. Okay, Jonah, what's your response? Are you finally going to get it? Are you finally going to arise and go where God calls you to go? Are you finally going to arise into God's design for your prophetic ministry? Are you going to do what God has called you to do? Church will never know. <laughs> the book ends right there. We never get to see Jonah's response. Why is that? 
Well, church, I, I think uh, there's something here that reflects what we studied in the Gospel of Mark several years ago. And I know many of you weren't here then, but let me, let me bring you up to speed. See, in the Gospel of Mark, we, we've, been, we've been seeing the ministry of Jesus unfolding over and over in this constant call to follow Christ's passion all the way to the cross uh, be, is, is themed. And, and we, we can't miss it. God is calling us through the Gospel of Mark to discipleship through the ministry of Jesus. And in Mark 16, 8, uh, the resurrection has already taken place, but the disciples aren't aware of it yet. And, and so uh, they come to the empty tomb, and some disconcerting things happen. And in Mark 16, 8, uh, with the disciples responding to what they've seen with this empty tomb, it says, And they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And the book ends right there. <laughs> it stops. Why that abrupt ending? What church Mark implies, what his readers already knew. The fearful disciples wouldn't stay afraid. (laughs) They'd become the bold apostles who had advanced the gospel into Judea and Samaria and, 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 and beyond, even to the ends of the earth. And here we are as recipients. See, if the gospels come to us, we know how the story ends. And church, The call for us is to follow in the apostles' footsteps, to go and do likewise. So also, here in Jonah, as as Bruckner says, the open question is not the end of the story. Amen? It's not. It keeps going. And we're challenged to consider that God's concern must become our concern. See, whether Jonah picks up the mantle or not, it's very clear to us who are reading. This is our calling. God's concern is that through his people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The disciples are made in every tribe and nation and people group. And friends, Jonah should have known this. God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless all peoples through you. It's not just a New Testament concept. The question for us this morning is this. Will we participate? Will we pick up that mantle? Will we engage God's mission, even if God sends us to Nineveh? Now, many of you have been holding a green card in your hand uh, this morning, all right? And you've been dying to know. I know. You've just been in suspense. You've hardly been able to listen. Uh, You're wondering, what's this all about? Well, hang on to it for just a minute longer. (laughs) But for now, I want you to consider with me uh, the world in which we live, okay? I think you'll agree with me that there are many different cultures represented in the world, right? There are many people that think differently than us, that look differently than us, that practice different faith than us, who have different values than us. And and sometimes, if we're honest, we might feel threatened by those values, and it makes us want to distance ourselves from those people. And sometimes there may be good reason for that. We, We might think about other cultures as Jonah thought about the Ninevites. Now, there isn't just one people group that might fit these categories, but, but our missions team is, has really beautifully been directing our focus on the Muslim world this year. And so I want to draw your atta- attention back to those who practice Islam. And church, Muslims, uh, we understand, make up about 25% of the world's population. Okay, And so depending on your background or experience, you and I might consider that 25% of the world Sort of how Jonah uh, considered Nineveh. It was foreign. It was hard to understand. It might have even been a bit scary. But I want you to go with me this morning, hypothetically, if you would. I want you to consider that all the people in this congregation this morning represent that 25% Muslim population. Okay? 
So just hypothetically, let's just assume or let's, let's, practice, let's, let's consider this, that, that all of us here are uh, Muslim. Now, here's, here's what I want. Those of you who have those green cards, and there's a lot of you, so you won't be by yourself, I promise. If you have a green card, would you stand up? Yeah. Good. Hey, you're being honest. That's great. Now, some of you are like, I didn't get a green card. How come I don't get a stand? Hang on. Hang on. All right. Church, those still seated are, are those Muslims who've actually met a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay. Those who are still seated represent those people in the Muslim community that have actually met a follower of Jesus. Now, not ones who are Christians, mind you, but who have simply met a follower of Jesus Christ. The rest, all of you who are standing, you represent those who've, who've never even met a Christian, much less heard a Christian speak the gospel. Staggering, right? It's, it's staggering. Church, you people that are seated, <laughs> do you think God cares about the people that are standing? The answer is yes. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Church, you people that are standing, do you, do you want God to care about you? Of course, right? You're a great city. There's 120,000 of you, right? God cares about his creation. His creation is important to God. Verse 11, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Stay standing, would you? Church, you and I are, are called not only to trust God's sovereignty, but also to engage God's mission. Look at the mission. Look at this mission. People all over the world that have yet to hear the gospel. People all over the world that have yet to even meet a Christian. Church, the mission of God is to go and make disciples among all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God calls us as his people to be a part of his ministry, his mission in the world, even if that means going to Nineveh. Thank you, friends. You can be seated. Now, church, you and I have an opportunity to participate in a, in a kind of a cool way in that mission today, okay? And so our missions teams prepared several resources that are designed to help you uh, participate in, in what's called a candidate school for those who are training to go into the mission field. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we have a partnership with a ministry called Frontiers that, that works exclusively among Muslim uh, people. And, and I'm convinced that we're going to have more and more opportunities as we continue to press in to God's heart for the nations. But for now, we have an opportunity uh, to pray for, for candidates who are looking at going on to the mission field. And there's a whole bunch of them. I looked at the names, and, and, and Frontiers brings all kinds of people in June down to Arizona. It's hot there, right? Uh, some correlation, huh? And, uh, and, 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 and they're preparing up two weeks of vacation to, to sit and to consider God's calling on their lives. And it's a big deal. And some of them are single, uh, some of them are married, some of them have kids. They come from all walks of life, all kinds of careers, all kinds of jobs, backgrounds. And these are people that are taking a step of obedience for God's call on their lives to go where the gospel hasn't been heard, to go to Nineveh, if you will. And, and here's the thing, some of these regions are quite safe, quite, quite normal, and some aren't. Some are hostile, perhaps, like Nineveh. And so here's the ask, okay, here's the opportunity for you. We want you to join us in praying specifically for these candidates as they, they seek God's direction and as they go through the process of preparing to be God's hands and feet to the Muslim world, okay? 
We want you to pray for them. And not just in a nebulous kind of a way, in an abstract kind of way, but we want you to pray specifically. And so at the information desk, there, there are bracelets. There are these cool bracelets, right, that say pray for final frontiers, okay? Pray for final frontiers. They're blue and pink. I guess that's um, uh, inclusive, right? <laughs> that's cool. But, but here's what we want. We, we want you to grab a bracelet and a card uh, with the candidate's name, Okay? And we, we want each candidate to have people that are praying for them by name leading up to and during candidate school. And there are a whole bunch. And so I would just challenge you, if you have a green card, bring it back to the information center and grab a bracelet, grab a name, and begin to pray for that person. You don't have to pray uh, forever until, until Jesus comes back, right? But just pray intensely over the next few weeks for that person. And if you don't pray intensely and you pray once a day, once a week, just pray, okay? Don't overthink it, all right? Pray. In church, as you can imagine, there are a bunch of people involved in running a smooth and successful candidate school, not, not to mention the, the candidates who've used their vacation uh, from their jobs to attend. And so next to the prayer cards and the bra- bracelets is fresh roasted coffee, and, and you can buy some, you can actually donate some, some coffee and take some coffee, and the coffee's good, and you can bring that home. And as you're drinking your coffee, you can pray for those candidates. I want to encourage you uh, to do that this morning. And by the way, 100% of that will go to support the candidate school. I'm going to pick up a name or two at least this morning. And I want to encourage you to do the same. And if you beat me to all the names, more power to you. Praise God. All right? So stop by there. Church, what's your attitude toward the lost and the dying this morning? Can I tell you what I think it is? What I keep seeing over and over in the story of Cornerstone that God is writing through us? I keep seeing a people committed to loving God. I keep seeing a people committed to growing people. I keep seeing a a people committed to serving our city. And and I keep seeing a people who, who, who the heart of God is beating more and more in such that we would be a people that's committed to reaching the world. And church, I I can't wait to see what that's going to look like. I think it's going to mean that we're going to see God reproducing disciple making communities throughout our region and beyond, and who knows how far it'll go, to transform all peoples, even people like the Ninevites, into passionate followers of Jesus Christ. I'm so excited to be on mission with you. Let's remember, to God, Nineveh is a great city, and He cares. And when He calls us to go, when He calls us to open our mouths, when He calls us to pray, let's be ready. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of representing you to the world around us. And I pray even for these candidates right now. I pray for frontiers. And as they seek to advance the gospel to those 9 out of 10, 8 out of 9, whatever the statistic is specifically, those people that have yet to even meet a Christian, I pray that communities would be raised up all throughout the 1040 window. And that that person after person, that family after family, that community after community would be transformed with the power of the gospel. And that the name of Jesus would would rise up in dark and hot and oppressive places and that God you would advance your glory through us to the world God thank you that your heart has always beat for the nations thank you that your mercy prevails and Lord help us to trust your sovereignty and Lord when you call us to arise to learn from Jonah's mistakes to learn from Jonah's negative example, not to run away from you, but to run towards you 
And of course, we've seen what those apostles who were afraid at the empty tomb, what happened with them. God, you got a hold of their hearts and they began speaking and they began going and they began praying and the world has never been the same. We wouldn't be here apart from that. So God, thank you for this great privilege of being your church. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.